find, of course, that there was a Darha Mabel, and the Darha Mabel were terribly mashchis their ways. They were very corrupt, very immoral, and as a result of their chamas, as a result of their gezel, as a result of the Gileyarayas, and all of the various um, iniquities that that generation did, HaKadosh Baruch Hu decided to send a mabel, a flood, to basically destroy all of the people of that generation, save Nayak and his family. And the question that the Mepharshim deal with is what exactly is the Midah Keneged Midah that HaKadosh Baruch Hu used when deciding that this was the appropriate response to this dart? After all, there could be many, many different Einshim, different forms of punishment. Why specifically did HaKadosh Baruch Hu choose to send a flood, a mabel, upon the face of the world as a result of the hashchasah, of the corruption, of the destruction of the Dar HaMabu. I saw this here, a beautiful pshat from a sefer called Beis Aaron. And the Beis Aaron says as follows, if we examine Maitha Bereshis closely in last week's parasha, we will find that Akrish Baruchu in Maitha Bereshis created a world and the world had very, very specific boundaries when it came to the purpose and the mission of every part of the Bria. So for example, on day one, when the R and the Cheshach, the day, the light and the dark were Mishtamish Berbubya, they were sort of overlapping and they were... Um, they were not separate, they were not distinct, but rather they were, they were constantly competing with one another. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says that there's going to be a Yaim, there's going to be a Laila, there's going to be a specific thing called Ar and Cheshach. They're not going to have this ability to eclipse one another, but rather there's going to be a Gevul. There's going to be a boundary and there's going to be a clearly defined line of demarcation. This is day, this is night. This is light, this is darkness. There's going to be a demarcation of time. There's going to be moments of day, moments of night. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted the world to be very clearly defined with a crisp border that there is absolutely no crossover. There's going to be black and white. Everything is going to have a specific time and a specific place. There's going to be a rakia. There's going to be a heaven that divides the mayim ha'oyayinim and the mayim ha'tachayinim. Up until that point, it was just all water. HaKadosh Baruch says, no. There's going to be a, a border that separates the lower waters from the upper waters. Etc., etc. That is how HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted the world. HaKadosh Baruch Hu created a world with clearly defined boundaries and limits. And he did the same with the crowning achievement of creation. What is the purpose of creation ultimately? HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world for Adam. Adam was the Makkah She was the final stroke. 
in creating the universe, and HaKadosh Baruch created man also with very clear limits of what he should be doing, what he should not be doing. Limits in terms of his machshavas, what you are allowed to think about, and what you should not be thinking about. Limits on one's speech, what you are permitted to say, and what you are not permitted to say. And limits on nicer actions that we are allowed to do, and actions that are prohibited for us to do. That is how man was created. Man, as well as the entire Bria, all of Shesh's Mebrachis, were given very clear rules and very distinct boundaries and perimeters where you may tread and where you may not. And all of that was going pretty well until the Dara Mabel came along. The Daramabal was a generation of people that pushed the envelope. They were not satisfied with what they were allowed to do, and they had this need to break the limits and to push the borders beyond what was permitted. And so whatever human societal norms existed up until that point, Daramabal comes along and says, we're not restricted, and we're not limited by the norms of society. We want to push the boundaries further than we're permitted. We don't want to stick to the natural limits that man has. We want to be able to do things a little bit more and different and beyond. We want to be able to experiment with things that society never experimented with, physically, emotionally, they wanted to do gezel. Gezel is the ultimate way of breaking beyond your boundaries. If you ever were a victim of a, of a robbery of any sort, if you were mugged, if your car was broken into, there's a very strong feeling of being violated. Even if it's just, you know, they ruffle through your glove compartment to find some, you know, marriage type. You're still like, how did somebody come into my car and that wasn't allowed? They're not allowed to come into my space. But the Anabal says, no, we're going to come into people's spaces, we're going to steal and we're going to be Hamas, we're going to be corrupt, and we're going to do our riots with people that we're not allowed to, and we're going to take people, and we're going to perform all types of abuse physically, on other people, this is the Dharamabal. The Dharamabal were not satisfied. They saw a boundary, and that just was like red in front of a bull. They wanted to break down the boundaries that were imposed upon them from time immemorial, from the beginning of creation. They weren't happy with those borders. They were not going to allow anyone to dictate where they go and where they may not go. And so, rightfully, Teva, the entire Bria, comes to the Rabbeinu Shalom and says, Hashem, this is the culmination of the Bria, Adam. And Adam is breaking all of his boundaries. So, why should we have to stick to our set boundaries? And HaKadosh Prophet says, you know what, you're right. If the entire purpose of creation was for Adam... And creation had baked into it 
the need for boundaries, the needs for limits. If Adam's not sticking to his limits, the Teva, I am absolving you of your need to stay within your boundaries. Today is Rosh Chaydesh. In Barchi Nafshi, David HaMelech writes, Givol Samta Bal Yavayrun. Bal Yeshuvan L'chasei Saretz. HaKadosh Baruch Hu creates lines of demarcation, a line in the sand, a border by which the water should not naturally be allowed to go past. There might be high tides, there might be low tides, but there is a certain border that HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Atan, the water is not allowed to go to the Pella because the waves of the water should naturally, you know, with their velocity, should be crashing way beyond the shoreline. And sometimes, occasionally they do. You know, Hurricane Sandy. My family, I grew up a block away from the beach in a, in a city called Long Beach. And normally the boundaries, you know, of the water stuck to their part of the, of the, of the ocean and they kept, you know, my side of the ocean, my side of land, you know, sort of intact. And all of a sudden they flooded the entire city. Not just Long Beach, but many parts of New York and New Jersey and beyond. But generally speaking, the oceans are under strict orders. Gevol Samta, I put a gevol, I put a boundary, a borderline for you. Baliava, you're not allowed to pass. But now, Adamarishan is passing that boundary. And if the oceans are here for Adam, so why does Adam need to, why does the oceans rather need to be firmer than Adam? If Adam's not sticking to his part of the bargain, so why do the oceans have to? And to that, the Torah tells us, Nifku The waters of the abyss, the lower waters, started rising without stop. And the Arubay Sashemayim, all of the upper waters, the Mayim HaLyayim, they also started crashing forth from heaven. And it was complete deluge. It was complete flooding. And the waters completely did not stick to the agreed upon Gevol that was predicated Maisabratius. And the same thing is true with the, the day and night. Day and night, the Chazal tell us that the, the sun and the moon, they just stopped, they went on strike. During this year of the Mabal, there was no Yayim, there was no Laila, there was no Ar, there was no, everything was, it was over. Maisa Gracious says, we quit. If other Mauritians not sticking to his parameters, then we're not sticking to ours. That is the Mida Kineged Mida of the Mabal. When a Dar is Mashkis, their Gevol, when the peripheries are crossed, when the borderlines are trans, transgressed, when you go and you trespass the lines that you are supposed to stay behind, the Teva follows suit. Teva says we're not going to be any better than Adam. If Adam's not sticking to his pre-assigned borders, then we will also crash forth throughout all of the borders. And that's why there was flooding and there was no sun, there was no moon, there was nothing. Everything just had a complete meltdown during that year of the Einesh of the Dar Hamabu. I believe there's another similar precedent to this concept. 
and that is by Parah and Mitzrayim. And Mitzrayim also, these were a nation. Mitzrayim was a nation that was complete Tumah. It was, everything goes. It was a society that we know Parah himself was the, the living signum of the Yetzirah. Chazal speak about Parah as being the, the, you know, the Yetzirah incarnate. And the people of Mitzrayim were very, very corrupt and very decadent. And that's why Kral Yisrael were so attracted to the Tumah of Mitzrayim. They sung to the 49th level of Tumah. And when all of their societal norms broke down, HaKadosh Baruch punished them. One of the punishments was Barad. Barad, there's a Pasuk in Tilim that says, you know what Barad was? Barad was when HaKadosh Baruch sent the Barad this barad, it's a pasuk in Tilim Kofei. It hit the vines and the teena trees. It shattered all of the trees, the border trees, the trees on the border between Mitzrayim and all the neighboring countries were ultimately destroyed by the barad. Why after the borderline trees, the trees that separated? between Mitzrayim and Kush, Mitzrayim and other neighbors, and all the trees within Egypt that were borderline trees, when you have two neighbors, very often they'll plant trees between their property line. All of those trees were shattered. Why? Because when people break down their borders, Sakharash shows them that this is what happens. When you break your borders, I'm going to break all of the borders of the world. HaKadosh Baruch Hu broke the borders during, or he allowed for the borders to be broken during the Mabo and Mitzrayim as well, all of the border lines went kaput, everything melted down, because when people are not keeping their clearly defined borders, what I may do, what I may not do what I may say, what I may not say, what I may think what I may espouse, and what I may not, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says you can't do that and if you do that, there's going to be a very swift punishment against the borders. Borders are very, very important. Every nation knows that if you want to be able to have an existing country, an existing government, you need to protect your borders. If you go into Eretz Yisrael, you know, the one thing that you notice is how, how much border patrol they have. The, the Shmir and the borders that they, the wall that they have to put up, you know, between the, the Yidden and the, and the Arabs in the West Bank in Gaza, you have to. If you don't, then you'll just constantly have people infiltrating, enemies infiltrating, and you can't have that. The border is very, very important. There's a halacha in Shulchan Aruch and Arachayim in Shin Tess that says that if Goyim are sort of besieging a city. So if they're besieging a Jewish city, so if they're coming for money matters, they want to take money from you, you're not allowed to be Mechal Shabbos for that. If let's say they're coming, I'll iskei nefashis, then you can. But says the Mechaber, based on a Gemara, that if it's a city al asapar if it's a city on the border, then even al iske Kevin Kevin Bakash, even if they're just coming to get a little straw, a little hay, 
that itself is enough of a reason to go and do full-fledged battle against them. But they're not coming for to kill us. They're coming just to get a little, little animal fodder. That's irrelevant. The Mishnah explains because the cities on the border are so essential to the defense of the country that if they're steamrolled, if people are able to break down the cities, intrude on those cities and conquer those cities on the border, the whole country is now open for conquest. And so those border cities have to be so on guard and they have to be so overly protected because if they fall, then the whole country could fall. That's the nature, the importance of boundaries is that a boundary, the limits, the perimeters that we put in society have to be met. They have to be enforced. If they're not enforced, then there's going to be a complete breakdown. There's a measure that I found in Bayikar Rabba. It's in Parachavav that says, they said to the Nachash, where do you find snakes? If you ever are looking for snakes for whatever reason, you'll find them between properties, there's a fence. And if you're ever looking, you know, if you ever like pick up the stones by a fence, or you're ever, you know, picking up, you're demolishing a fence for whatever reason, under the fence or between the fences, you'll always find tons of snakes. And they ask the snake, why are you always, that? that's where you hang out, why are you hanging out between the Gederes? And the Nachash answers, Because I was the one that broke down the Gedder of the world. The Nachash was the first being in the universe that was able to make man sin. The Nachash HaKadmani convinced Chava to eat from the Etzadas, and she in turn convinced Adam. And because of that, because of that, all of the Chet in the world comes about. Death comes about because of this, because of this Avera. The Nachash broke down the Gedder Shalaylam, so that's why it's found in the Gedder Shalaylam. What does that mean? It means that whenever a person has a taiva, be careful. That's where the nachash lies. And you know where the taivas are, you know where the where you have to be extra careful? By the gederas. When you have, you wanna, you have a set limit, and you know that there's a limit, and you know that you shouldn't be doing something, but yet, I wanna do it. I wanna break down that fence. That's where the nachash lies. The nachash tries to seduce us more by the Gideras, more by the things that we are, you know, we're toying with, we're playing, this is the, this is where the perimeters are, I want to cross that line, it's a line that nobody crosses, you don't cross that line, but I want to, I want to speak this way, I want to do that, I want to look at that, I want to read that, I want to act in a certain way, but you can't, there's a line, you can't do that, that's what I want to do, I want to. That's where the Nachash is. The Nachash is always found Bein HaGideris. That's where the main Mulchama lies. And just like when it comes to defending a country, you have to make sure that the border cities are strong and fortified because if they fall, the whole country falls. When we have our own human restrictions, those are good. And we have to fortify those restrictions. The minute that those restrictions fall, 
then the whole thing falls away. People that go and, you know, go off the derrick, it doesn't start with, like, you know, they don't all of a sudden go from, but they, they decide to do something that, that they never did before. And from that, all of a sudden, everything goes. It just takes one act of breaking one single gather, and once that gather is broken, then it's very easy to, to give up on everything. And so a person has to be very careful with making gedarim for themselves and not crossing those gedarim. In the yeshiva of Slabotka, there was the Rosh Hashiva, the head of the yeshiva was of course the famed Alter from Slabotka. The Alter was a, the greatest mechanic you know, in, in many generations, I think that would be my hands down vote for Machanech after, you know, present company excluded, after, you know, the Machanech of, of, of the decades is the, the altar. How do I know that? Because how do you judge a rabbi? You judge a rabbi by the Talmidim that he produces. Who did the altar produce as his Talmidim? Not bad, not bad a list. Of, of Talmidim, if I may say so myself. People like Rav Rudiman, like Rav Shach, Rav David Leibowitz, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, um, Rav Aaron Kotler, not a bad list of Talmidim. The Alta, the, the, you know, the, the, the Mira Yeshivas, all of the Yeshivas, all the great Yeshivas in the world come from Slabatka, period. And so, it's very fascinating to learn about the altar and about his methodology. The altar was very beloved by his Talmidim. The Talmidim in Slabotka idolized the altar. And when the altar was giving a shmuz, so he would have a shtender, and he would have, like, Bachrim would be, like, clamoring to surround his shtender. They wouldn't sit, they would be standing a lot of times, and they would each have their own shtenders, and they would, like, you know, be standing, waiting for the altar to come into the room, and they would be like hanging on his every word. And sometimes before the altar shmuz began, you know, there was some jostling amongst the Talmidim who would get to be closer to the altar, and sometimes, you know, people would pull rank, and they would say, you know, this is my makkum, and that's my makkum, and there would sometimes be like, you know, like shoving matches, and body checking taking place in order to get their makkum nearest to the altar. So the altar came in one day, and, you know, again, there was like, people were like shoving each other and pushing, and they were, there was clear, like, agitation taking place. And the altar starts off his shmuz and says the following. He says, you know, we find, by Misa Bereshis, in last week's parsha, Chazal tell us that each tree that was created, that was growing in the world, there were no two trees that were overcrowding one another. There were no two trees that says, okay, I want to grow here. No, I want to grow here. Each tree gave each other space. One tree was over here. One tree was over here. One tree was over here. One tree was over there. Every tree had space and they had place for the roots. The Gemara Kulin says that the Asabim, the grasses, took a Kavachimer from the trees and they also grew like that. They grew every, every blade of grass, if you notice, if you ever examine grass, 
every blade of grass has its space. It doesn't have as much space, let's say, as trees have. It doesn't need as much space as trees. But you'll never find two blades of grass that are like fighting it out for one, for one, you know, little centimeter of, of ground. Every blade of grass has its own space. And the author says that that's how human beings have to do it also. We have to learn from Teva how each person has to have their space and allow other people to have their space. And we have to respect one another's space. I'm not supposed to go into your space and you're not supposed to go into my space. We have to have our clearly defined givo, our borders, we have to erect barriers. This is my place, this is your place. Sometimes people go into each other's spaces. The most obvious example of people going into other spaces is in business. And there are clearly defined halachas about this, called hasagas gevol. You're not allowed to be masig the gevol of your friend. You're not allowed to move borderlines. So the simple type in the puzzle is if I have, let's say, a field and you have a field, I'm not allowed to go in the dark of night and move the fence a couple of feet down so that I get more property. But of course we know that hasagas gevol extends to all types of businesses. If you have a pizza store on a, on a street, and you know you yourself maybe are struggling to make karnas or maybe not, and there aren't enough Jews in town to support more than one pizza store, and all of a sudden I go and I open up another pizza store in town, there are clearly there are halachas about this, and there's a lot of dentiris about whether or not I'm able to you know interfere in your space. If that's your space, that was your space. If, I, if there's a shul in town, there's a yeshiva in town, there's a lot of halachas. You have to learn there's many halachas about whether or not when you can do it and when you cannot do it. But a person has to protect his space and he has to be able to also know not to intrude other people's space. You're not allowed to go into other people's property. That's another very important space that you have to respect. A lot of times we snoop in other people's drawers when your roommates are not around, you know, and let's say his computer is open or maybe he has some sort of journal, a diary of some sort, and you're a little curious about, you know, what he's doing, what's going on, and you start looking at what he's looking at, you start reading things that you're not supposed to read, that's a very, very bad thing, because by doing so you're invading other people's space. And you're not allowed to. There are borders. There are boundaries in life. When I was a, a Talmud in, in Kaltaira and Yushalayim, I think I've told this story many times. So I was in Rav Shlemizam in Ayurbach Shir. And a friend of mine had a job that I happened to have Yarshin. I inherited it after he left. And the job was basically to go over to Rav Shlemizam after the Shir was over get his keys to his office and get his, his and, and take his notes his, his like, he had a little like, machberis, like that we used to have in school and that's where his chidushim were in that he would give over in shir you take those two things from him and you run to the other side of the yeshiva you know, on the marble floors, you sort of like slide down half the way into his office you open the door of the office you get it, you put the shir note the notes of his shir down on his desk, on, on a table in the office, and then 
you bring back his hat for Mincha and he goes straight to the base Medrash for Mincha. That's the job. I had that job afterwards. I have a lot of funny stories about when I had the job, but now it's just to talk about my friend when he had that job. And he one day went over to Rav and Rav like was fishing around in his pocket for his keys to give him to open up the door to the office and he couldn't find them and he was scared because you know the office key was on and I think his house key was probably on it and he couldn't find it it was very you know very trouble, troubling for him so my friend said you know maybe the Rosh left it in the office so he said okay fine go check so my friend runs to the other end of the building and the office was open and he looks on the Rosh desk it wasn't there he looks under the desk, it wasn't there. He looks on the couch, it wasn't there. He looks, you know, it wasn't there. <coughs> All of a sudden he sees that Rav Shlomo Zalman's coat was hanging on a hook, you know, in the office. He says, maybe he left it in his coat pocket. So my friend put his hand in his coat pocket, and sure enough, that's where the keys were. Us, he was so happy. Rav is going to be so pleased with him. So he runs down the hall, he slides right into Rav Zalman, up until Gavol Samsa, right before Rav Zalman, and he says, Rashiva Matzati Atamafteichot. I found the keys. Ah, Baruch Hashem. Where were they? Were they on the desk? No, they weren't on the desk. Under the, no, not under the couch? No. So where were they? They were in the Rashiva's coat pocket. At which point, Rosh Hashanah turned white. And Rosh Hashanah was at Tzadik Yisrael Eilam, and everybody knows all the tzitkas of Rosh Hashanah. This story is better than all of them, because this shows what a rabbi really is. And Rosh Shiva started, I don't know if he raised his voice, but he said to my friend, he says, you put your hand and you put it in my coat pocket? You took your hand and you put it in my coat pocket, that's what you did? He says, yeah, that's what I did. He says, you took your hand and you put it in my coat pocket? He says, when you were there, maybe you took my wallet also? Maybe you, maybe you stole my wallet also once you were there. Who gave you permission to put your hand in my pocket? My friend said, if you would have a, a shovel and be able to start digging his own grave, he would have, right then and there. He felt so humiliated and so bad about what he did. But what did he do? If, if the story is like bizarre to us, like, well, what's the big deal? Yeah, he, he did a favor. Because we're not sensitive to borders. We're not so sensitive. We're very lax when it comes to borders. We don't understand that. We're American young people who, and I, I count myself as that also, I mean. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, we, everything is lax fast. Everything is live and let live. And, you know, whatever. We're all one clever and we can all do whatever we want. And I can go into your drawer. You can go into my drawer. You can go into my knapsack. I can go into your... Everything is hefker. But if you have a mind of halacha and you have a mind that's sort of molded by the Torah, then you know that there's nothing worse than breaking a border. You're not allowed to put your hand in my pockets. You're not allowed to put your eyes in my stuff. There's something called Hezekiah. You're not even allowed to look at some, some of my things. Forget about touching them. <laughs> Sometimes a person is invited to somebody else's house and you know they want to see like what type of medication these people are on. 
they go into the bathroom. They, the first thing they do is they open up the medicine cabinet. They say, oh, wow, this guy is on this heart pill, and he's taking this, and he's smearing that on himself, and he's doing that. What right do you have to look in somebody else's medicine cabinet? And you think it's, it's, people do this. People do it all the time. And a person has to know what he may do and what he may not do. Where you're allowed to look, where you're not allowed to look. What you're allowed to read, what you're not allowed to read. These are the gulim that we're talking about. These are the important boundaries that we have to learn cannot be broken. And we see from the Darham Mabel so clearly that when they decided to break down boundaries, albeit you know more, more dramatic boundaries, but boundaries the same, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends a Mabel. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, listen, if you're breaking boundaries, there's no boundaries in Teva. I'm not going to allow my Teva to have to be confined to its space when you're not confining yourself to your space. And a person has to be very, very careful with boundaries. I'll give you another example of a boundary that a lot of us break. And that boundary is the way we deal with our fellow people. A lot of times, I sort of tend to overstep my bounds in the way I deal with people. And sometimes I can be downright mean and downright abusive in the way I talk to other people. And I could say something to you that's very hurtful. Or I might bully you. Bullying is a very big problem today. If you have, if you're in yeshiva, then you probably are no stranger to either being a bully or being, being bullied yourself. If you have young girls, which Baruch Hashem I have, three of them, you know girls are much worse than boys. Girls, bullying, it's, it's the worst. Girls are very, very catty. And, and girls could mamish, they could, they could take another girl and mamish throw them down the steps again. Mamish just with the way that they gang up and they, they say the, say things that are harmful and really hurtful and if you're on the outs of, of a clique, you're finished. That's abuse and that is breaking borders. You don't have a right to do that. You have a right to say to, to tell people things that are not nice and make them hurtful and make them go go back home crying. You don't have the right to do that. That's a border that may not be crossed. You have to be nice to people. You have to help people. You have to do good with people. And when you cross the border and you start reaching in, you might not be stealing from them. You're doing much worse than that. You're hurting them. Maybe not physically, which is also a borderline issue by the way you have to you can't touch people you can't hit people you can't stop even if you think you're doing it in a joking way you're you keep your hands to yourself you don't have the right to do anything that would even remotely cross a border you have to respect other people's space these are the borders that we're talking about today On the internet, it's very bad. On the internet, with Facebook, and with all of these things, there's so many ways of bullying on the internet. It's called cyberbullying. Cyberbullying is basically, and we spoke about this many times before also, how 
you know, I don't know all of the ways that you could do this, but I guess on Facebook and other, you could just basically put very hurtful comments and how, you know, you're, you're a blank and you're a blank and you're a blank and before you know it, the person like feels like he just wants to kill himself. And it happens. You, you read about this in the paper and then Eretz Yisrael, you know, I was once in Eretz Yisrael and Rashtiba was telling me, he, long story, but basically he gave a Muslim who was in front of me to his yeshiva because there was a guy who, there was cyberbullying on Facebook in some place in Eretz Yisrael and they told this guy on Facebook, you know, you're such a loser, why don't you kill yourself? They how they killed himself. And that morning, this Rosh Shiva came to the base Medrash and gave a Muslim Shmuz how you shouldn't use Facebook, but you should never, ever, ever remotely bully somebody else. You don't have the right to do that. Who gave you permission to put your words? Words are also very hurtful. It might not be your hand, it might not be stealing. It's much worse than stealing. It's much worse to bully somebody than to stick your hands in his pocket. Singing, you, you took his wallet, big deal. But you still, you, you, you speak to him in a way that's abusive and, and, and you could kill the person. That's one border that I want to talk about. But I want to talk about another border that's sort of the same idea but on the other end of the spectrum. And that is that just like we said, you have to avoid trespassing into other people's borders, whether or not it's talking badly about them, whether it's abusing them, bullying them, stealing from them, acting in a way that's inappropriate, touching them, all of these things are things that are very, very wrong, and it's a breakdown of the society society norms, and and this is these are things that could cause a potential mobble in any which way, there's also another very important thing about when we speak about boundaries, and that is that you have to protect your own boundaries. Not just to respect somebody else's boundaries, that's like what the altar was talking about, that you can't encroach on other people's space, give everyone their space, but you have to protect your own boundaries. And what I mean to say is as follows, a lot of times in relationships, people don't know that they are entitled to having their own space. And they are entitled to having their own boundaries. And because of that, they sort of allow people to walk all over them, to abuse them, to bully them, and they're okay with it. They go along with it. They don't at all put their foot down. And that's a very, very bad thing. Because every person, just like you're not allowed to abuse and, and, and enter somebody else's space, nobody's allowed to enter your space. And you have to be vigilant about that. You have to set up your own Mishmar to make sure that people are not going into your boundaries. You have to set boundaries very clearly. And if somebody is telling you things that you don't like to hear, if somebody is touching you, if somebody is trying to make you feel bad in any which way, or trying to convince you to do something, and you don't want to do it. You have to be very firm, and you have to say, this is not what I want to do. I do not want to do this, period. Don't be pushed around. You cannot allow people to take advantage of you, 
and to convince you to do things if you don't want to do that. That's a very critical thing for a person to have a healthy life. I don't care whether it's single life, whether it's married life, whether it's in the workplace. There are so many different times that people who are sort of by nature a little timid and a little weak, that they allow for other people to walk all over them, to take advantage of them, to make them do things that are wrong and inappropriate and, and unfair. But they allow because they're afraid that if they exert any, you know, anything of their own, if they say, I don't want it, then the, the other person is going to fire them or they're not going to be friends with them or they're not going to like them so much or they're going to get angry at them. A person has to realize that you are entitled to your own space. You are entitled to say yes, and you're also entitled to say no. And you have to learn how you don't have to go along with everything. I'll tell you a cute story that just popped into my head. I always get in trouble when I say cute stories that just popped into my head. There's a reason why I have index cards before I go into the schmooze, but... Um, when I was a buffer, and I probably shouldn't be saying this, when I was a buffer, so I had a friend who was my chabrusa. That's not a good thing. You shouldn't have a good friend that's your chabrusa. You should really like not like your chabrusa so much personally because then you actually learn something. So, so we had a deal with, it, with, with one another. And the deal was... No, so... Anyway, sometimes, believe it or not, <laughs> sometimes, um, you know, he would start, he would start battling with me. You know, and then, okay, you know, I took the bait, starts battling with me, so I start schmoozing with him. All of a sudden, like, he gets very from, he starts saying, we gotta learn, we gotta learn. Like, in the middle of my sentence, like, he already got off his chest what he wanted to. You know, then I was saying, yeah, well, well yeah, no, 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 we have to learn. I said, well, what do we have to learn? You started battling. So he says, well, I started battling. I have the permission to battle. And now I have the right to say, I don't want to battle anymore. And part of me was really upset about that, but part of me was like, wow, that's cool. Like, you have the ability to say no. Just because you started battling doesn't mean that the battle has to continue forever. And even if it's mid-sentence, that I'm saying, doesn't matter. You have the right to say yes, and you have the right to say no. Hapesha asar huapesha iter. And vice versa. You have the right. You have the right. You don't have to listen to other people. People, that doesn't mean you, you should walk around life and be, you know, one of these militant people that are always like, you know, no, yes. It, you have to be able to be urban labrius. You have to be able to get along with people. You have to have, you know, a very nice manner about you. And you have to be also accommodating to people, obviously. You have to be a normal person. But there are some times, and it happens all the time, that somebody says, you know, you know, could you do this for me? Okay, I'll do a chesed for you. But sometimes they're like, you know, then can you do that for me? And can you do that? And after a while, like, no, I don't want to do that for you. But you have to because your roommate is stronger than you. Stop it. You're afraid that, you know, no. There could be a time that I could say, I'm sorry, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do it for you. Well, how can you not do it? You're not a Baal Chesed. I am a Baal Chesed. But I don't want to, I'm not your slave. A person has the right to say, this is the Gabul. 
This is what I do, and this is what I don't do. Because I did it yesterday, I don't have to do it again today. Because I did it a minute ago does not mean that I have to do it next minute. I make the decisions around here. And I have to be in control of what I'm doing. When No one is allowed to box me out of who I am. And when a person understands that, people will respect you more. They're not going to say, oh, wow, he's a, he's a bad guy. He's a really tough guy. No, you're not supposed to be doing it tough. But there are times in your life you have to say, no, I will not do that. I don't want to do that. And sometimes, you know, even if you have a febra, sometimes a lot of times guys come over to me and they say, you know, I'm changing, I'm not going to the movies anymore, I'm not doing this anymore, I'm not doing that anymore, but it's hard for me when I go home. Because when I go home, Ben Azmanim or an off Shabbos or whatever, so, you know, all of my old friends from high school, they call me and they want to get together and inevitably we're going to do stuff. And, you know, and I, it's very hard for me to say no to them because then they're going to call me from me and they you know... <sighs> And, and it is a big Nisai, and I'm not downplaying that. It's definitely very tough. So, but what I say to them is that you, you know, either avoid their calls. If you know what they're calling about, just, you don't have to answer the phone. That's also very important. You know, sometimes you think that you always have to pick up the phone. Every single time the phone rings, you gotta get it. You don't have to get it. A lot of times, you know, if I see it's, you know, caller ID is sometimes a really good invention. If I see somebody I don't want to pick up the phone, I have to pick up the phone. Sometimes it's during supper time. It's always during supper time, the phone rings. You know, I don't have to get it. It's my phone. If I want to get it, I could get it. If I don't want to get it, I don't have to get it. I had a Rebbe in, in, in seventh and eighth grade. I wasn't left back. I, it, was, it was a Rebbe that taught both seventh and eighth grade, believe it or not. And I had a Rebbe in seventh and eighth grade, and he told me, he once said, he learned in Chaim Berlin as a Bachar. And in the olden days, in Chaim Berlin, in all yeshivas, they had, they didn't have cell phones, it was before the age of cell phones, they had a pay phone. And pay phones for, you know, people that aren't dinosaurs, um, you know, you wouldn't know what it is. But me, a dinosaur, does remember very clearly what a pay phone is. You know, it's sort of these boxes on the wall, and you have to put a quarter in, and you know, and you lose the quarter nine out of ten times. And anyway, and then, but people call in. You can call into a payphone for free. And in Berlin, there was most of the time it was busy, but if you got lucky, you know, one of the phones was you know available, and and you could call. But it's a big pain. You pick up a phone, and then somebody has to go find you in the base medrash, and you know. But you know, when a phone call came, it was like a big deal. Like something that probably was important. Or, you know, at least somebody is trying very hard to get through to you. So my Rebbe told me that there was a bachar in yeshiva that came over to him during Seder. He was learning with his chavrusa. And this boy came over and says, you know, uh, Ramesha, that was my Rebbe's name, you know, you have a phone call down in the payphone. He says, okay, thank you. And he continued learning. And, you know, a few minutes later, this guy comes over and says, Ramesha, did you, you picked up the phone? He says, no. Uh-uh. He comes back like a few minutes later. Did you, did, there's a phone call for you. So he says, because a person puts a quarter in the phone, I have to go and run? I'm sitting learning with my chavrusa. What do I have to go to a payphone for? Just because somebody calls you doesn't mean you have to get it. Because somebody texts you, you don't have to respond. Because somebody emails you, you don't have to respond to the email. You don't. If you want to, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. 
You have to set your own parameters on your life. And once you do that, then you can be happy. Because if you have no borders, and you're a complete shmata, and you let everything go, and you let friends say whatever they want about you, and do anything they want to you, and boss you around, you have no life. Your life is no life. Your life is only a life if you have clearly defined borders, and when you do chesed, and when you want to be with people, and when you want to talk to people, and when you want to go somewhere, it's on your own accord. You decide, you paskin, do I want to or I don't want to? If you want to, fine, go for it. If you want to pick up the phone, it's a free country. If you want to do a chesed for somebody, that's fine. But don't be forced into doing anything that you don't want, because if you do, you're so weak that you will never have a happy day because you'll be so busy being everybody's ever. And you have to, obviously, there's a balance in life. You have to find that balance. You have to be able to know when I want to be a Balkhassid. You want to be a Balkhassid. You want to be a good guy. You want to be a nice guy. You want to be a guy that gets along with everybody, but sometimes it's just not possible. There are times that you have to say, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And so if your friends call you and you don't want to go to that place with them because you know that that's not a place you should be going to. So if you picked up the phone already and they're saying, hey, you know, let's go. We're going to have a great time. We're going to party. We're gonna... I'm sorry. I'm busy tonight. Why are you busy? You never... I am busy. I was reading over Ben Azmanim, a fascinating book. It was in the Young Israel of Queens Valley Library. And so, you know, these long davenings with all the, you know, yeah, you know, you're not busy every second. And um, maybe it should be, but uh, maybe I should stop talking. But um, <laughs> there's a, a biogra- an autobiography by Uri Zohar. Uri Zohar um, was one of the he was he is he is the the Chayzer B'tshuva of the Dar, the Chayzer B'tshuva of the Dar, hands down. If any one of you ever heard of Uri Zohar or knows even remotely who he is, so the way the book jacket describes him, you know, he was all of the great, you know, if you could take, this is the way he was described by the book, all the, the great Gaisha American comedians and actors and radio personalities, you take all the best and you lump them into one person, that was Uri Zohar. He was a brilliant comedian and he was a great actor and he was brilliant, and he was a director, and he had his own television show, like a talk show, he had a radio show, he had everything, super, super talented, the number one celebrity in Eric Tissot. I don't know if such a person exists in America today, you know, today, you know, but in Eric Tissot, that was, he was it, he was it. And he was like the most, it was described in the book, he was the most secular Israeli in the whole country. The movies that he did were not like rated G. They were, you know, the opposite. And the and, and his manner of talk and his whole his whole routine was all laced with with with, with the gimel chamuris. And all of a sudden, for some reason, he was invited to a bris of a friend of his, and at that bris, uh, you know, a rabbi started talking to him and you know dared him about doing something and he took him up on the dare and Akitzer like he just couldn't hold himself back from seeing the emiss of Tyre of, of Yiddishai and it was like the hardest thing for him at the height of it he wasn't like a has-been and like he had nothing better to do he was it 
He had money. He had fame. He had everything that he wanted. Everything that a, that a person could dream of, he had. And he was just getting greater and bigger and more stardom and more celebrity and more fame. But he could He was an Ish Emes, apparently. And he couldn't anymore turn away from the truth, which was Yiddishite. As hard as he tried. And he came on a, on a talk show, uh, on, one of his, on his show. And he came like wearing a yarmulke and his tzitzis were out. And they, all his friends were like, come on, stop the shtick. Like, they thought for sure this was just shtick. It was just him doing shtick. And he's the last guy that would be Chayzeh B'Tshuva. And then, sure enough, they found out that he was enrolled in yeshiva, and one thing led to another, and Akitsa, he, you know, he was, he became, you know, Uri Zohar. Rev Uri Zohar. Today, he's, you know, he has a long white beard, and he has a black hat, white to the whole. He's like the head of, of Leib, uh, of, and you know all the big Kirib organizations he's it but it was like a transformation and he said like you know he said he was once stopped he was like driving after he started becoming from her and the whole it, this shook up the whole country it was like an earthquake in the country when he became from her. an earthquake and somebody pulled up alongside a Chiloni and he rolled down his window he says are you Uri Zohar? he says yeah I'm Uri Zohar he says, how did you do that to us? He says, you made us laugh. And now there's no one to make us laugh anymore. How did you do that? How did you have the chutzpah to do that? And he sped off. And to me, that was godless. Because what he essentially was, was a person to say, I have a gabot. I am allowed if I want to, I mean, you know, he was a free person. He was allowed to be successful. He, he didn't know any better. He grew up not being from. He's a Phoenix Shanishpa. He was allowed to be a celebrity. He was allowed to advance his career, you know, for what he felt was okay to do. But there comes a point, I see the MS, and I come to a point in my life that I'm saying, no, I don't have to do this thing. What do you have to do it? What are you doing? The whole country is expecting you to do I don't care. I am me. I have the right to say yes, and I have that same exact right to say no. And I cannot be budged. If I want to do this, I will do it. I don't care if there's a million people that are saying, you have to go, and you have to be a celebrity. We need you. You have to be, you know, the king of all media. I don't care. This is what I want to do. Goodbye. That's godless. For a person to have such strength of character that he says, I don't need to do it. You want me to do it? Too bad. I'm, this is what I'm doing. <coughs> that means that a person has a gavol. And if a person has a gavol, a person has a boundary, then you're a mensch. This is what Adam was created for. Adam was created with very clearly defined boundaries. This you may do, this you don't have to do. This you may say, this you can't say. And if we look at that as a threat and a dare, then... We're the Dharamabal because we're going to trespass. It's not going to lead us to any good. We're going to be more confused and we're going to get punished and it's not good. A person, even though naturally we don't like boundaries, we like being, you know, we get claustrophobic sometimes when we have set limitations, but limitations are good. Limitations are vital. Limitations are how our Kaddish created us. And we have to be able to thrive within our gabal and be able to prosper like the trees have their gabal. That's how we could be fruitful within our gabal. So, Mitzvah Hashem, we should learn these lessons. We should set limits. We should erect barriers. We should define our boundaries. And when we do that, that's when we will be happy. 
in Yiddishkeit and Torah and as a human being, we will not interfere in other people's space and we will definitely not permit other people to overstep our space. Have a wonderful